0: Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We say together, Amen. Friends, I invite you to sit down first, unless you want to stand. It'd be a little odd, but sort of interesting. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the second chapter of Jonah, the granddad of all fishing stories. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, as my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah out upon the dry land. What a wild and wonderful story. Last week we met the main characters, God and Jonah. God called Jonah to go to speak in Nineveh. And he didn't want to go because he didn't like Ninevites. And instead, he went down to the station and he bought a ticket to ride in the opposite direction and he ran away. And then we meet him in chapter 2 after he'd been tossed in the sea by those crusty old Lebanese mariners. This poetry in chapter 2 speaks to the heart of our condition and speaks to a place that all of us have been, a place where many of us will end up, a place where some of us are right now, and that's in the place in between. For the next moments, I want us to just look at a few images in this chapter. And instead of thinking about all of the oddball details of this story thinking, hey, I'm trying to remember Marine Biology 101, and could this prophet live in a methane environment? Instead of all that, let's let's hear the story like we were sailors eating our fried barracuda thousands of years ago, and let's be mesmerized by it again. And let's allow the images from this story to speak into this very moment speak into our lives. The first image I want us to look at is the image of the sea. Jonah was thrown into the sea. And much of this prayer, much of this prayer of thanksgiving, which is beautiful poetry, much of it is about his descent into the depths of the ocean. You ought to spend some time later this afternoon just just sort of imagining yourself in the images that are all surrounding this. Just going down in the seaweed and and the darkness closing in and, and the mountains underneath the waves. Jonah went down into the sea. This guy who was so in control of his destiny, so in control of his choices. God, the creator, said, go here. He said to God, the creator, no, I'm going there. And he went there. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, without without his, without his choices, he has no feet under him. Now he's descending, and his arms are flailing, and he can't draw in air, and he can't argue, and he can't fuss. He can only fall deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the sea. Into the sea. In Scripture, the sea is often spoken of as a symbol for anti-creation forces, for forces of sin and chaos and darkness and the demonic in the Old Testament, we have a picture of this in a number of places. One of, one of the places is in Psalm 74. Hear these words, verses 12 to 14. Yet God, my king is from old, working salvation in the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the head of the dragons in the water. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food to the creatures of the wilderness. There's a certain perspective that sees the sea as a foreboding place of chaos, anti-creation force, the habitation of the dragon and Leviathan. Greg Boyd does an excellent job in his book, God at War, dealing with this image of, this, of the sea. It's in chapter 2 if you want to look it up. Anti-creation forces. You say, well, that's just an isolated text from the book of Psalms. No, it, it runs throughout the text. In fact, when you get all the way into the book of Revelation, 21st chapter of Revelation, as there's a description of life as the kingdom comes, as the reign of Christ commences, as sin and shame and the adversary have been dealt with authoritatively by the reign of God and His mercy and His kindness, there is a little phrase, and the little phrase is, and the sea was no more. The Bible to see is often a symbol of that which is aligned against God and His wisdom and the life that He would have for all of us to live. It's a picture of the self disconnected from God. It's a picture of the self in rebellion. It's a picture of the self Oh it begins with choices and in control and it ends up it ends up without any legs under us surrounded by the darkness it's a symbol of the power of darkness to grab us and pull us down during World War II, Helmut Thielicke, the German pastor and theologian, gave a series of lectures in churches that were continuously being bombed. One would be destroyed and he would move on to the next one. During those years, those years of struggle, as he resisted the regime, as war was going everywhere, as people were dying hand in hand, he wrote a little essay titled The Reality of the Demonic because it became okay for smart people again to talk about the reality of evil. Because it was everywhere and it was undeniable. And this is what he said. He said, now naturally one cannot talk about the demonic simply by stating that it exists outside of ourselves in the world. That the great Babylon rules outside and then listing its symptoms. No, we find all of this within ourselves. The vigorous gods and demons of our heritage, to mention only these, maintain their heart fires in us. It is not as all as if their onslaught of these gods and demons simply came to us from the outside. No, the mystery of this assault lies in our vulnerability. That is, in the fact that we are unresistant to them from the outset and actually oblige them with points of vantage. The voice of the old Adam that's our self disconnected from God. That's our, that's our stubborn selfishness. That's our rebellion. That's Jonah running the other way. The voice of the old Adam to which these powers address themselves is heard within us. It was not without reason that again Luther, who had perhaps the deepest knowledge of these things, said that this old Adam must be daily drowned within us. He is actively at work in us like an enemy agent in the interior of a country, giving information by radio to the hostile power and directing it to the weak spots on the front. Daily, this old self, this self in rebellion against God, daily, Luther said, this old self must be drowned. One of my favorite phrases from biblical study or theology comes from Walter Brueggemann when he just cast aside the idea that we must walk in our odd baptismal identity. I love it. Our odd baptismal identity. Today, in this room, we took Nehemiah Green and we dunked him all the way under the water and if we'd have left him down there, he'd have drowned. That's the symbol The baptistry is often spoken of as the watery grave. That's where the self in rebellion against God goes to die. And that emblematic moment at the beginning of our faith journey is lived out daily and momentarily every single day after that. Because the heart fires of the adversary yet burn in our bosom. And the default of a life disconnected from God is to run toward the sea. And the best thing that can happen to that rebel heart is for that self to be drowned in that sea. That's where Jonah was. He was in the place of chaos. He was in the place of death. That's the first symbol, and that's a pretty dark one. The second symbol is humorous, wild, funny, and full of life. The second symbol is a symbol of the fish. Now we often think of this prayer as a prayer for deliverance out of the fish. No, no, no. Get this. Uh, Jay Hardy Kennedy talked about this. Get this. The fish is not a symbol uh, that need. Uh, it's the symbol of God's, uh, of God's liberation. It's a symbol of God's redemption. It's the oddball symbol of God's hard-edged grace. It's the symbol of the distress that brings life. It's it's the symbol of the discipline that that brings brings fullness. This is a fishing story, and it's a humdinger of one, and this fish is a symbol of what can happen in a life that is is spiraling out of control. It's a symbol of God's focusing our attention, focusing our our gaze on Him. Side note, but hang with me because it connects... Last week as we were, we were leaving, Coach Taff was mildly offended that I didn't tell uh, his favorite fishing story about himself. So, Coach, here we go. You ready? You all ready for it? Sometimes people ask me what Coach Taff is like, and I say, you know, he's a country boy from West Texas. One time Coach Taff was out at Red Covington's little, little lake out there, he was fishing under a tree with a hot dog. Now, if you can, you can get, gain a certain amount of success in the world and still comfortable fishing with hot dogs, that's my kind of guy, you know what I'm saying? He's fishing with a hot dog and he pulled in a catfish bigger than my son Wes. <laughs> Big old catfish. And he sent a picture to everybody, all of his buddies, all of all the people he's fished with, all, all people. And he was like, just like a little excited 12 year old. Look at my fish, look at my fish. Coach was so proud of that fish. I said, Coach Taff, what'd you do with that fish? He said, Well, I threw it back. I was incensed. I said, well, you're making far too much money if you're going to throw back that much fish. I said, you ought to up your tithe and keep your fish. (laughs) Ah, True, that really happened, y'all. I felt that way because I learned to fish with my grandfather, who when he was a boy, fished for food in the midst of the Depression. He once was bit by a snake muddy in water. He took a leaf rake to the bottom of a slough and and asphyxiated the fish. They'd pop up. He'd put them in a croaker sack. The family would eat for the week. He would risk life and limb to feed the family at the creeks and in the ponds. For me, fishing was a symbol of food. And I've never been able to just really get past that. My fishing buddies will tell you, it's hard for me. I mean, I follow the state regulations, but to the letter, friends... Yeah, it looks 10 inches to me. If you're watching, state of Texas. That <laughs> generation of people that grew up in the Depression, World War II, they, they were focused on things. And we're, we're losing them. Every week, we're losing them. and The lessons that lived. One of the lessons that they left behind for me was that, was that focus that came from those seasons of, of stress those belly-of-the-whale moments, that kind of experience that Eugene Peterson would call ascesis, those pressure points that focus our gaze on what really matters. I learned fishing the power of those, those pressured moments to focus our gaze on life. Jonah was in the belly of the fish And he was being squeezed from all sides. It was delivering him, but it was also changing him. It was focusing his attention. Peterson talked about that kind of experience in his great little book, Under the Unpredictable Plant. It's an exploration of the story of Jonah for pastors, and it's really good for anybody. And he says this about about God changing us in these hard-edged moments. He said, the simultaneous defense offense is called ascesis. It begins in the condition closest to home, the ego. In time, congregation and institution will also be included, but the ego is the place to start. The ego is the playing field, the praying field for an eschesis. The story of of Jonah eschesis is achieved in the belly of the fish. The belly of the fish is a place of confinement, of severe and inescapable limits. When you find yourself in the sea, in the chaos, look for those places of inescapable limits. That quiet sanctuary of the heart where your gaze can be focused like a laser. That's what happened with Jonah. And that's what happens in our lives because of God's stubborn, relentless grace. So if you're in a fish's belly right now, you may want to ask, what do I do while I'm there? Well, Jonah gives us the guidance. He he tells us what to do. And I would suggest these three things. The first thing is, in, in the belly of that fish, we need to remember the Lord. You might want to call this a prayer of recollection. And this needs to happen daily in our life. We need to remember the Lord. Remember who we are and whose we are. Who we belong to, who made us, who redeemed us. And friends, if your life is not lived with a rhythm of connectedness to God, then that is the very place to begin. To learn what, what God has done for you in Christ and what God has provided for you through His grace. To learn the, the hope and the promises of Scripture for those who would humble themselves before God and receive the gift that only He can offer. But for those of us who profess our faith in Jesus Christ, this is the place where we come back to over and over and over and over and over again. A place of remembrance. When you read the Old Testament, you begin to realize that they had a memory problem. Because over and over and over and over, remember the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Remember the Lord God uh, who, who bore you on eagles' wings. Remember the Lord God who did this and who did that and who did the other. Remember the Lord God who, who wrapped your shackles off of your feet and brought you into a new land. Remember the Lord God. Remember, remember, remember. Why is that thunder throughout Scripture? Because we forget, we forget, we forget. And Jonah forgot He forgot in the deep places of his life who he really was. His want to got all busted up. And here in the belly of the fish, his focus is being drawn ever so tightly to his true self and his true place of satisfaction. And he remembered the Lord. Second thing we can do is pray the word pray pray the word this prayer of of jonah in jonah chapter two it's beautiful it's also totally ripped off and that's great every line here can be found in the psalter can all be found in the book of psalms these are things that were sung and chanted and recited and memorized and meditated on in the life of god's faithful people and here they're all just put together. They're linked together like a chain. And here Jonah prays, but, but he, doesn't, he doesn't pray. Help me find a parking spot in Target. Help me to find a, a happier way, a happier way in Tarsus. Help me figure out Tarsus. He comes back and he prays the truths of the word that had been tucked down, buried down, hidden within his heart, down deep. And, friends, as we journey with God, there's some things that we just must engage, and and we must engage the truth. I love that song we sang this morning, Ancient Words. These words were preserved for us, they're given to us as honey from a rock. And Jonah, in that moment of, of, of focused attention, he returned to those ancient words and he found them. He found them to be the words that were dwelling in his heart, and he offered them up to God. So we remember the Lord, we pray the word, and the last one, we pay our vows. He said, I will pay the vows that I have made to you. I will bring the sacrifice into your temple. This means that he would put feet to his prayers. He would put action to his words that he would live out. In this moment, his commitment was to live out this new perspective that he found in the belly of the fish. Back in Marine High School, I had a number of really eccentric teachers, and, and one of them was uh, Paul Raley. Old Mr. Rayleigh was a great guy. He was, he was a civics teacher and a really good teacher. About every four years, he'd win Teacher of the Year. He was just a really engaging guy, funny uh, and, and bright. And, and he, was, he, he pastored little, tiny Methodist churches way out in the, in the country. He, he was the city teacher, but he'd go out in the country and pastor these, these little Methodist churches. And, and, and he wasn't all that demonstrative about his faith. I mean, we knew he was a, a Christian, uh, and he would often volunteer to be a sponsor for one of the, the campus Christian groups, and he was nurturing that way. But, but you know, he, he wasn't a, you know, verse on the coffee mug kind of guy, but he, he lived out his faith in the classroom. But one thing he did that was really interesting is he had on the back of his classroom uh, wall the letters, uh, BFF. W O R, just big, printed out, about the size of the wall, covered the whole back part of the wall. And the first day you went into to Mr. Raleigh's class, you just looked back there and you saw all these letters on the wall. And you, what? What's that about? This doesn't make any sense. They weren't decorative, they were black letters, and they were about six feet tall, and they ran the course of the back of his classroom. And so during the course of the semester, you began to learn what those letters were there for. Uh, and, and you would come and say, Well, well Mr. Rayleigh. I didn't do my research paper and I'm sorry and he said I'll take your sorry he said but look at the letters what do they say you'd say well it says B F I mean what exactly an I chart Helen Keller could have re- read these letters b-f-f-w-o-r he said you know what that stands for said, what he said this is this is from john the baptist he said, i'm not preaching to you i'm just just giving you some some things to think about he said these are the words of john the baptist in matthew chapter 3 that, that stands for bring forth works worthy of repentance he says i'm glad you're sorry but i'm going to need a really good paper out of you i want you to put some feet some thoughts some actions to your sorry And he'd focus our gaze, and he'd get it tight. The best papers written in Mister Rayleigh's classes were written with a ten-point deduction and a little talk about bringing forth works worthy of repentance. And there were a bunch of old football players and a bunch of budding debutants that learned how to work, that learned how to live, that learned about honor and respect. In the belly of the fish, Jonah prayed. He focused his gaze back on God again. But he also vowed. And he also vowed to keep his vows. There's a lot to learn in the belly of the fish. Why are these things so important? Because they hit who we are and where we are and what we're about. I recently read an essay by Greg Jones titled, Belief, Desires, Practices, and the Ends of Theological Education. When you're a nerd, you read stuff like that. And every now and then, there's a great takeaway line. And in this essay, there was a great takeaway line. He said, our lives are shaped by the complex interrelations between what we do, what we think, and what we passionately want. These are often difficult for us to disentangle in trying to make sense of our lives. Why do we do what we do? Because of what we think, how we behave, and what we want. And it's rare that these things don't just tie together like the cords in a rope. And what happened in this fish spoke to all three of those entangled, powerful realities. Jonah got his thinking square again. He got his heart. He got his heart fixed again. He got his wants shaped again uh, by, by coming back to those sacred words that had nurtured him. He got his behavior lined out. If you're trying to figure out why you're doing what you're doing... It's those things working together, and life can be found in the belly of the fish. Well, I love the line. This, this, is my, this is my favorite line. Then the Lord spoke to the fish. I bet that was a fun conversation. Hey, fish, it's God. Hey, God. I wonder if he sounded like Don Knotts talking back, you know. Mr. Limpet. Mr. Limpet. Oh, I don't know how that went. Great story, wild and wonderful. But God spoke to the fish. And like a watermelon seed out of a fat man's mouth, Jonah was deposited on the beach. On the land, on the dry land, maybe on a rock. When I envisioned the beach, As a kid, I always envisioned those sugar white sands of Destin. And then I walked the beach in Galveston. (laughs) I learned that beaches weren't made the same the world over. Maybe he was tossed up on a rock. People are made for walking and running and standing and sitting. Swimming only in short intervals. We were made for the land. He got back to what he was made for. I used to love those scenes of Pope John Paul II getting off an airplane. I love Pope John Paul II. He'd get off the airplane, and very ceremoniously, he'd get on his knees, extend his arms, and he'd kiss asphalt. All over the world, he'd kiss concrete and dirt and asphalt. He'd get back on the ground, and he'd kiss it. First long trip I ever took was to Russia when I was in college. Long, we flew straight into Moscow. I'd never flown to Birmingham, and here I was flying to Moscow. That long, over-the-ocean flight coming home, got off the plane. All I wanted to do was play like I was the Pope. My mom has a picture of me very ceremoniously kissing the ground. You're not made for the chaos. The chaos is not who you are. You were made for God. You were made for the land. You were made to find your satisfaction and your life in Him. And doing what He wants you to do. You don't have to find yourself. God will tell you who you are. God, we love you. And we thank you for loving us. And God, we thank you that you love us in all the seasons of our lives that you love us. That you love us as we're running with you, that you love us as we're running away. God, we're grateful that your grace even penetrates the frothiness that is chaos and sin. You come after us. You come after us. God, we thank you for this pursuing grace. We thank you for this stubborn love. And God, I pray that you would would break us to the place that we are ready to be mended. And God, I thank you that you give us the rhythm of life where we can, can be nurtured in your way, where we can be people who very voluntarily, day to day, remember you and pray your word and live out the call or wherever we are in this i pray that you would draw us to yourself and that we would have the the sense and the courage to come or i pray for those in this room that do not know you that they would that they would begin to just wonder that they would have a taste and or for those of us in whatever season that you would you would meet us where we are today and draw us to the next step the next step of life and purpose and meaning and satisfaction and hope. God, we thank you for your sacred words. Lord, may they be true in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Friends, let's stand in in this attitude of prayer. Let's sing to the Lord. And if God is is doing something in your heart that you believe should be made public, we invite you to come uh, for your good and for the glory of God. David, lead us as we sing.